I invite you to turn with me in your Bible to the New Testament book of Titus, Titus chapter 2. You'll find it on page 1272 in the Pew Bible if you're using that. If you're a guest with us, we've been working verse by verse through the book of Titus, and we've come to chapter 2, and we'll be spending uh, a few weeks in this section. Uh, we began it last week, and we'll begin reading in verse number 1. While you're finding your place there, I want to make uh, two more book recommendations building off of last week. These recommendations in particular are for the younger men in the audience this morning, uh, those teenage years up into their 40s. And uh, so the first book is by Steve Farrar. It's entitled, How to Ruin Your Life by 40. And so it's a very catchy title, but it's a helpful, helpful book for teenagers and those in their 20s to read. And then the second one that I'll recommend to you, I've read this book twice. I put it in my top 10 of books for men. It's also by Steve Farrar. It's entitled Finishing Strong, Going the Distance for Your Family. And so I would recommend men in their 30s and 40s to read that book. Uh, so those are the recommendations for today. Don't worry, ladies. Next week when we address the passage that speaks to you, I'll be making recommendations for you as well. Titus chapter 2. We'll begin reading in verse number 1. Go speak for a few minutes this morning on this subject, instructions to the old and the young. And this is what the Word of God says, beginning in verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, Urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, that, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Have you ever thought about the kind of man or woman you are becoming. Jonathan Edwards, one of history's greatest theologians, did. In his early 20s, he penned 70 resolutions in response to the penetrating examination of his life. For example, in Resolution 50, he writes, Resolved, I will act so as I think I shall judge would have been best and most prudent when I come into the future world. In this resolution, Edwards projects into eternity future and considers how he will evaluate his life on earth. 
And as you continue to work through his resolutions, you find that Ed's words does not wait until it's too late to change the course of his life. He considers the end of life while he is still a young man so that he can finish his race with joy and not with sorrow or shame. In Resolution 52, Edwards imagines himself as an older man and he writes this, I frequently hear persons in old age say how they would live if they were to live their lives over again. Resolved that I will live as I wish I had done supposing I live to old age. And so while still a young man, Edwards fast forwards the reel of his life. Then he slowly backs up and he scrutinizes possible future decisions. He examines himself for fault lines in his character and his choices that could cause his life to crumble. And then he determines that he will follow God and his ways. In Resolution 7, he writes, Resolved, never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. And in Resolution 17, he writes, Resolved, that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. Every week of his life, Edwards disciplined himself to reflect on these and the other 68 resolutions as he considered the kind of man that he was becoming. Jonathan Edwards' resolutions remind us and warn us that we will not live life wisely or well if we just steamroll or shuffle, whichever is your pace, thoughtlessly, and aimlessly through life. For an unexamined life leads to unnecessary regrets, especially at the end of life. Titus chapter 2 is a helpful passage on this subject. As I mentioned to you last week, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ needs this text. For in these verses, Paul paints a picture of a community where age and experience matter, where there are unique challenges and temptations in every role and every generation, where older men and women are teaching younger men and women, where the young seek the counsel of the aged, and where the aged set an example for the young. The driving theme of these verses can be summed up in one important word, the word discipleship. Older men need to disciple younger men and older women need to disciple younger women christians were never meant to live their lives alone they were meant to live their lives in a community and a crucial ingredient of this community is the discipleship that should take place across the generations and in this passage we see clearly and simply Paul's instructions to the old and to the young. And last week we looked at his instructions to older men, those, if you'll recall, 50 years old and up. This morning we're going to look in verses 6 through 8 at his instructions to the younger men, 49 and below. 
And he's going to teach us two things in these instructions. First of all, in verse number six, younger men need encouragement. He writes in verse six, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. As I mentioned, the implied age span for younger men in this passage is approximately mid-teens to 49 years old. And he says at the outset that Titus is to urge the younger men. The word urge could literally be translated encourage, to give the younger men counsel, to give them advice. It is a present tense imperative in the language which gives it a force of a command that Titus is to continually set this teaching before the younger men in the church. And so what is he to urge the younger men to do? It's one word. Now that doesn't seem fair. I mean, I'm 50 years old, and I had to listen to the whole litany of instructions to older men last week, and younger men get one word? Seriously? That's it? But it's an important word. Look at it in the text. Urge them to be self-controlled. It's the same word that he uses in chapter 1, verse 8, to describe the self-control that elders should possess. It's the same word that he used in chapter 2 and verse 2 of older men, that older men are to be self-controlled. A form of this word is used in chapter 2, verse 3, to describe older women being self-controlled. And it is also used in chapter 2 and verse 4 to describe younger women being self-controlled. So Paul is teaching Titus in this passage Every single person in the church, whether young or old, man or woman, should exhibit the quality of self-control. And this word emphasizes the possession of mental and emotional composure. A self-controlled person is a person who is focused. They're not distracted. They're not impulsive. They are composed. And so in a simply stated comprehensive command, Paul is challenging Titus to direct the excitement and the energy of younger men in a clear-headed, disciplined, Godward direction through sound teaching. I found Chuck Swindoll's comments on this word and instruction from Titus to the younger men very practical and helpful. Here's how he breaks it down. Titus, help the young men learn how to apply the breaks to life. Don't you love that? It's a great synopsis. Apply the breaks to life. Help them understand how to bridle their tongues and control their tempers. Help them know how to curb their ambition and to purge themselves of greed. Show them how to master their sexual urges and impulses how to follow their minds instead of their glands. Teach them to be responsible stewards of money rather than squanderers. Show them the rewards of unselfish leadership and the folly of self-centered pursuits. Help them apply the brakes 
to life. Now, like his counsel to older men, Paul's instructions to younger men is in direct correlation with the temptations that younger men face in their life. An old commentator by the name of William Barclay said of this passage that the time of youth is necessarily a time of danger. And he gave three reasons why the time of youth is a time of danger. And I found these to be very practical and helpful, and I think you'll agree once you hear them. He says, first of all, in youth, the blood runs hotter and the passions speak more commandingly. The tide of life runs strongest in youth, and it sometimes threatens to sweep a young person away. That's an astute observation. The passions of younger years can sweep you away. Number two, he says, in youth, there are more opportunities for going wrong. Young people are thrown into company where temptation can speak with a most compelling voice. Often, they are away from home in the influences which would keep them on the right path. The young man has not yet taken upon himself the responsibility of a home and a family. He's not yet made the kind of attachments to people and things that cannot be easily given up. And he does not yet possess the anchors which hold an older person in the right way through the sheer sense of obligation. In youth, he says, there are far more opportunities to encounter disaster and to wreck one's life. Number two. Number three, he says, in youth, there is often that confidence which comes from a lack of experience. In almost every sphere of life, a younger man will be more reckless than his elders for the simple reason that he has not yet discovered all of the things that can go wrong. He will often shoulder a responsibility in a much more carefree spirit than an older man because he has not known the difficulties and has not experienced how easily disaster can come upon one's life. Helpful observations. Real, practical observations. And so in light of the looming dangers that surround younger men, Paul tells Titus that it is imperative that younger men learn to exercise self-control and that younger men exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, which is self-control in every area of their life. One simple word, one simple command that covers every single area of a young man's life. Titus continually urge the younger men to be self-controlled. I recently came across a Desiring God post entitled, How to Ruin Your Life in Your Twenties. And they made seven observations in this post. Here they are. Number one, if you want to ruin your life in your twenties, do whatever you want. Number two, live beyond your means. Number three, Feed an addiction. Number four, run with fools. 
Number five, believe your life is about you. Number six, live for immediate gratification. And number seven, avoid accountability. These are danger signs that every young man and every young woman needs to hear and be confronted with. And Paul didn't just give this command to Titus and to the younger men at Crete. He gave a similar command and observation to his young protege in ministry, Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 22. And listen to what he says in this verse. So flee youthful passions. Flee youthful passions. And pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Flee youthful passions. Exercise self-control in your life. And the word flee that he uses in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 22 is also another present imperative command. It indicates that fleeing is not an option. It is an expectation that is to be persistent in a life. It's where we get our English word fugitive, referring to a person who is continually on the run, avoiding capture. And so Paul tells Timothy, as a young man, as a young minister, flee youthful passions. Be like a fugitive continually, every moment of every day. Run away from those things that can trip you up and take you down. And he describes those things as youthful passions, the cravings and the desires of youth. One person described them this way. They're the headstrong passions of youth. Meaning that you know some of these passions aren't right. And yet your head is so set towards them. You're so headstrong in them. You refuse to turn away from them. Flee youthful passions. Exercise as a young man self-control in every area of your life. Can I help you think about this for a minute and what it means? Young men, flee wasting hours playing video games. Flee it. Find something more productive with your life. Young men, flee the dangerous cliff of pornography. Somehow, this has just become an accepted thing that young men will do. Why? Why would we accept and rationalize this kind of behavior? And really, let me just be clear about it this morning. It's not a behavior. It's a sin. It's an addiction. And why would we readily accept it? Why would we not rise up and fight against it for the purity of the younger women in our church and in our culture? For the purity of the young men? It's like pornography 
is a cliff, a dangerous cliff, and all the young people and middle-aged people and even senior adult people, let me be an equal opportunity offender this morning, are running head first on the cliff, and we're acting like it's okay, that it's normal, that it's to be expected that we would run towards this cliff. When really what we should be saying is, if you can't stay pure with your phone, get rid of your phone. If you can't stay pure with your computer, get rid of your computer. If you can't stay pure with your TV, get rid of your TV. Flee these things. Flee these youthful passions and grow up. And realize that it's not all about your self-gratification and your own pleasure. God didn't design intimacy that way. He designed it for two people. A husband and a wife. Not a man and a phone and a computer screen. And you say, well, pastor, don't you think that's pretty uh, severe to tell the young men to get rid of their phone and to get rid of their computer and to get rid of their TV? Well, you tell me which is more severe. And Jesus said this, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better if you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. He said, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole self goes into hell. Now you tell me which is more severe, getting rid of your phone or cutting off your hand. You see, you've just rationalized. You've rationalized it. And I'm not going to rationalize it. To the day I die, I'm going to challenge men to say no. And to fight for purity. And to exercise self-control in their passions. Young men, don't you realize one day there's going to be a young lady by God's grace who's going to come into your life and sweep you off your feet, and then you're going to have to go talk to her dad. And if he is a dad worth his salt, he is going to ask you about pornography and your purity. And you're not even thinking about that day. And you would be willing to throw away this girl for your own self-gratification. You're not thinking straight. You're not thinking with the future in mind. And young ladies, don't you ever buy into the idea that you have to accept this kind of behavior from young men, that it's normal. It is not normal. It's sin. Young men, flee avoiding responsibility. Take on responsibility. Pursue responsibility. Flee numbing yourself with substance and alcohol abuse. Flee getting addicted to technology. Furthermore, young men, flee being ruled by your emotions. Flee anger. Flee bitterness. Flee unforgiveness. Flee pride. Flee the scars and the pains of your past that other people have wounded you with. Be disappointed, young men, but don't give up. Be discouraged, but don't run away from the church. Be hurt, but don't hold a grudge. Be a man of 
self-control. A man of faith that exercises self-control by acknowledging his passions and his emotions, but refusing to be controlled by his passions and his emotions. What Paul is telling Titus is a call to stop being complacent and hiding behind the pretext of your age as being prone to unrestrained youthful passions. He's calling you to be different. He's telling you that the world may say, it's okay, it's just your age, it's what people your age do. And he's telling Titus and he's telling the young men in the church, don't fall for that trap. You don't have to be like that. You can be different. You can exercise self-control. And here's what I want you to hear, young men. The passions of your youth that are not dealt with properly will only grow stronger and become more distilled in your middle age. That's why Paul says, urge them continually in self-control. Tim Chester said, young men need to grow up. They need to take life seriously. They need to take their faith seriously, and they need to be responsible. Now, I want you to look at the text. (laughs) Because when you hear this simple one-word command, be self-controlled, and it's covering every area of life, you think, how in the world is this possible? How can somebody do this? And remember, this command is given to older men, older women, younger women, younger men. It's given to everybody in the church. And I want to remind all of us this morning that it is possible for a young man, for a young man and for every Christian to live a self-controlled life. If it wasn't possible, the command wouldn't be in your Bible. So it's possible. So then the question becomes, how Does a young man do this? How does a young woman do this? How does an older man do this? How does an older woman do it? Well, would you look in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, and I'm going to read these verses, and you follow along. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. In these verses, we discover where the power to be self-controlled lies. Do you see it? Paul tells Titus, it is in the grace of God He tells Titus that the grace of God teaches us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. The grace of God is the vehicle to self-control. So what is the grace of God? Simple definition. It is God's unmerited favor. God's grace is His unmerited favor. And the Bible teaches us that every single one of us needs God's grace. We need God's grace for our salvation. We need God's grace for our sanctification, a theological term that just means to become more and more like Jesus Christ once you become a Christian. We need God's grace to be strengthened, and we need God's grace to stand firm in our convictions and in our beliefs. We need God's grace for every single area of our life. And I'll prove to you this morning why we all need God's grace. You need God's grace 
Because your good works and your good behavior don't have the ability to change you by themselves. And you know that's true, don't you? Doesn't your life testify to that truth and reality? How many times have you said, I'm going to start this new habit. I'm going to start this new discipline. I'm going to let go of this addiction. I'm going to stop doing this. And I'm going to start doing that. And you failed after a week. Maybe you made it a day. Maybe two weeks. But it's no more in your life. Because you in and of yourselves in your own works and your own behavior are not powerful enough to change your heart and to change your life. That's why you need God's grace. And that's why, as Paul tells Titus in this passage and tells us, that grace appeared in God's Son when he left the glory and the splendor of heaven and he came to dwell on earth. It was a display of the grace of God when Jesus was born. And the Bible says in John chapter 1 that when Jesus came to earth, he was full of grace and he was full of truth. And so he grew up and he began his ministry and his ministry was described as being full of grace and truth. He never compromised on the truth. He always called people to the truth and to respond to the truth. And then he gave them grace when their own works couldn't bring them to the truth. See, that's why you need grace. And God's grace was fully displayed in his son. And then when Jesus living a life that you and I could never live, a life of perfection, was nailed to the cross to die a death that you and I deserve to die because of our sins, grace was displayed once more. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that you and I could identify with him and his work on the cross on our behalf and we could become righteous and holy and pure before God, something that our works could never bring about in our life. And so God's grace was displayed in the death of his son on the cross. God's grace was displayed in the empty tomb when Jesus rose from the grave three days later. As a sign that through Christ's work on our behalf, our sin was defeated. Death was defeated. The strongholds and addictions were defeated through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And God's grace was displayed once again when Jesus ascended to heaven and is sitting at the right hand of the throne of God making intercession for us this very moment. That is a display of God's grace. And God did all of this display of grace so that when you and I believe in Christ and what he has done for us through his life, through his death, through his burial, through his resurrection, and through his ascension, and we turn from our sinful passions and sinful desires, and we receive this grace of God through His Son, Jesus Christ, God's grace changes us. He takes a heart that is prone to sin and that is full of sin and that is dead, and He brings it to spiritual life. He takes a heart that is cold and stony, and He makes it alive and warm. He takes a heart that had no affections for the things of God and now makes it a heart that loves God and the things of His kingdom, that loves Christ and loves the people of God and loves the worship of God. And all of that change takes place through the grace of God. And never through our works and never through our own efforts. And when we receive this grace and it changes us, listen to the text. It teaches us to obey. And it teaches us to exercise self-control. 
That's why Paul could say, no temptation is overtaking you except that it is such as common demand. But God is faithful, and when you're tempted, he gives you a way of escape. What is the way of escape? His grace. His grace. So that you're in the midst of the temptation when you're fighting against the passions of your youth. And you remember that God calls you to a self-controlled life. It's His grace that gives you the ability to obey. It's His grace that tells you to say no. It's His grace that tells you to walk away. And it doesn't just tell you to do that and teach you to do that. It gives you the power to do that. And if you've never experienced this kind of grace that can only come from God's Son, Jesus Christ. It's why you're not victorious. It's why your passions are dominating you. Because you haven't been changed by grace. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 25 to 27. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. That's it. I discipline my body. I bring it into submission through the grace of God. And by God's grace, I exercise self-control so that at the end of my life, I will not have lived it in such a way that I would be disqualified and cast off. James Draper said, Each of us, regardless of our age, should commit ourselves to God now so that as the years pass, we will be able to be what God wants us to be then. If we're going to be what God wants us to be in old age, we must be what God wants us to be now. That's it. That's it, young men. What are you waiting for? What kind of invitation are you waiting for to rise up and be a godly man? What kind of invitation are you waiting for to flee the passions of your youth? To take on responsibility? To press on and press in to God and the things of his kingdom? What are you waiting for? Are you waiting for your 30s? Are you waiting for your 40s? Waiting for your 50s? Waiting just to hope to slide in at the end? Our society has encouraged the exact opposite of this text in the lives of young men. The culture we live in values self-fulfillment instead of self-denial. And self-expression instead of self-control. That's why it's normal to see young men postpone the responsibilities of manhood until their late 20s, 30s, or even beyond. Listen to the heart of your pastor, young men. I'm saying all of this to you out of love this morning, and I hope you know me well enough to know that. There is no room in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ for you to live for yourself for two, three, or four decades before you begin to live out the picture of a godly man. If you are a young man in this room this morning, do you feel the challenge of this text to take your life seriously? To take your faith seriously? To take on responsibility and to mature? Do you feel the weight of the text? 
to do that? If you're a young man, do you feel the challenge of this text to flee the passions of your youth and to move forward? Well, young men need encouragement. They need encouragement and challenge and urging to do these things. And then Paul says in verses 7 and 8, they need an example. He says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Now, Paul is talking to Titus in verses 7 and 8, who is a young man himself. And he is telling Titus that Titus has the responsibility to set an example for the younger men in the church and for the entire congregation. And if you look closely at verses 7 and 8, he says that Titus was to live his life in every respect as an example of good works, an example of integrity, an example of dignity, an example of sound speech, so that Titus would not be condemned and his opponents would be ashamed because they would have nothing evil to say about him. This was the example that Titus was to live before the church. And you'll notice in the ESV, he uses the word model. Use an example, be a model of good works. That word model refers to a dye that leaves a mark or an impression on the thing with which it is struck. It's the same word that is used to describe Thomas's response to believe in Jesus when he said, I will not believe until I see with my own eyes the scars in his hands and in his feet, the imprint in Christ's hands and feet. It, it literally means a mold or a copy of the original, whether it's a physical object, a principle or a virtue. And Paul is telling Titus to live his life in such a way that he would leave a mark or an impression on the entire congregation, especially the young men. It's what he told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and in conduct and in love and in faith and in purity. Paul is literally telling Titus to live in such a way that people will want to follow you, especially the young men. And Titus, live in such a way that you stamp your life upon theirs. That your life makes an impression upon their life. It's a reminder in this text that young men should be looking for older godly men to whom they can model their lives after. And Paul tells Titus in the text that as a model to others, Titus was to be an example of good works. Titus was to be real. He was to be genuine. He was not to be superficial or cosmetic. He was to live a good life, a righteous life, a noble life, an excellent life. Whether as a father or a son or a worker or a leader, he was to be a pattern of good works. In his relationship with the opposite sex, he was to have good works. In his attitudes towards money and possessions, an example of good works. In his commitment to the Lord Jesus and his church, an example of what is good. And I don't have time to show you this this morning, but this is the theme of Titus chapter 3. Three times in Titus chapter 3, verse 1, verse 8, and verse 14, Paul tells Titus to emphasize good 
works. And the only way he can do that is if he is an example of good works. Titus was not only to influence the young men of Crete by his living, but also by his teaching. Because living what you believe and teach is a powerful example. And so he says, in your teaching, show integrity. Have purity of motive, purity of content, and purity of life. A man of integrity fights against the danger of power and the temptation of establishing the wrong measure of success. He refuses self-promotion and cleverness and charisma to attract attention to himself and away from God's word. He's sincere in what he does. He refuses to be corrupted by worldly influences. And as a man of integrity, he was to set an imprint of integrity on the younger men in the church. Then he says, in your teaching show dignity. Titus was to have a seriousness and a weightiness about him that was focused on God and what is most important in life. And Titus was to carry this weight of responsibility and accountability to God before the people. He was to teach them with the dignity that God's word deserves. And friends, I'm just going to parenthetically insert something here and move on. It's one of the things that is lacking in the church in the 21st century. The dignity with which the word of God deserves. When we come together as the people of God, we are encountering the God of the universe. There is a seriousness and a weightiness about that task. And it shouldn't be done flippantly or casually. It should be done with the dignity that God and his word deserves. We are talking about serious matters of life and death every single time we gather. And why in the world wouldn't we do it with dignity, seriousness, and weightiness? All of our lives need it. And then he says, and in your teaching, show sound speech. And what he's talking about there is Titus's day-to-day conversations. He is to give edifying, sound, healthy, life-giving speech. And why is he to do all of this? So that when he lives his life in this way, he will imprint his life upon the younger men of the congregation. He will imprint his life on the older men of the congregation. He will imprint his life on the older women of the congregation. And he will imprint his life on the younger women of the congregation. And if I could add, he would imprint his life on the children and the teenagers of the congregation. And why would Paul want Titus to do this? Do you see the end of verse 8? so that an opponent would be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. And what Titus is learning from Paul is that the pure word of God from a pure vessel of God silences condemnation and criticism. And Paul says that when they get up to condemn and criticize, they'll actually be ashamed of what they're saying because they have no substance to their accusation. Here's literally what he's saying. 
Titus, you have such a serious and weighty and sober responsibility to impact the older and the younger in such a way so that you would multiply this influence all throughout the church so that all of these false teachers that are creeping into the church would be silenced by every older man, every older woman, every younger man, every younger woman because of the influence for God and good that your life has brought upon them. That's what's at stake. If you want to know why these instructions to older men and younger men and older women and younger women are so important, it's because the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ in a fallen, sin-cursed, sin-filled world is at stake. And the church must look different. And it must act different. And the way that's done... Is discipleship and influence from one life to another. So, I'll close with four applications this morning. Application number one. In a healthy church, older men are worthy of respect and treated with respect. And older men teach younger men how to live for God. Young men, do you have a desire to be guided and shaped? by an older man if so have you identified a godly older man you can model your life after and have you asked him if he'll invest in you why wouldn't you do that today before you leave if you have a man in mind ask him if he'll invest in you application number two older men Who has God put into your life whom you could disciple? How do you need to restructure your time and priorities to make this relationship happen? And remember, older men, we're talking about 50 years old and up. Older men, would you open up your life and have younger men in your home? Would you take them with you to run errands or to work on a project? Would you let younger men see the way you live? Would you let them see your marriage and your parenting? Would you let them see your failures and your triumphs? Would you read the Bible and pray with them? Would you answer their questions? Would you give correction and instruction? Would you provide a platform for younger men to learn how to lead and mature? Older men, would you do that? Application number three. This is for everyone. Men and women alike. What youthful passions do you need to flee once and for all? What area or areas of your life do you need to exhibit self-control? Who do you need to talk to about these issues so that you can find encouragement, accountability, and help? Remember, you aren't just going to wake up a self-controlled, godly man or woman. You need the grace of God, along with your discipline and effort, to become this kind of man or woman. In application number four. The principles of these verses are not only relevant for Titus' situation in Crete, they're relevant for our situation in Wheeling, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. 
We too need to discipline ourselves for good works. We too need to discipline ourselves for the development of our character. To discipline ourselves for our spiritual growth. And to discipline ourselves for the communication of biblical truth to our unbelieving spouses and children and grandchildren and neighbors and co-workers. And so my question for everyone this morning is, who are you leaving your impression on? Who is walking out of this place today with your mark on their life? Christians were never meant to live isolated lives. We were meant to live in a community. A family of believers where older men still intentionally and passionately pursue God, providing an example for younger men to aspire to. While at the same time, younger men are encouraged to flee their youthful passions and to pursue a self-controlled life of maturity and responsibility. Steve Farrar, in his book, How to Ruin Your Life by 40, said this, The Christian life is a race. When you are in your 70s and 80s, you spend a lot of time thinking about how you're going to finish the race. But in your 20s, you should be thinking about how you're going to start the race. The decade of the 20s determines how you start. The decade of your 30s will be spent living with the consequences of the decisions of your 20s. And how you respond to those consequences, both good and bad, will determine what your life will be like at 40 and beyond. End quote. So, what kind of man are you becoming? What kind of woman are you becoming? An unexamined life leads to unnecessary regrets, especially in the end. That's why it's imperative that we hear, we understand, and we obey this text of Scripture. In a rapidly deteriorating world, these truths are not only essential to every one of us as believers, they are essential to the witness of the church in the world. Who? are you becoming? Let's pray.